0: Please turn your Bible this morning to Luke chapter 1. As some of you know, I've been preaching through Luke for quite a while, for about a year and a half, probably a little bit less than that, but uh, two years ago in December of 2020, we uh, preached through Luke 1 and 2 in in the beginning of January 2021, I suppose. And uh, essentially what I'm trying to do today is go back to those early sermons, so December, January of 2020 and 2021, uh, and review the first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, the main reason I wanted to do this was that uh, I wanted to show how many of the threads that we see in the week-to-week expositions of Luke have their roots all the way back in the very beginning of the book. That These are not new ideas that actually Luke masterfully wrote this book in such a way that there are uh, threads that go from the very beginning of the book all the way through and culminate beautifully in chapter 24. So I kind of wanted to explore some of those threads with you. But I will say that what I'm trying to do today uh feels a bit like being a tour guide at Gettysburg and somebody hopping in your car to tour the battlefield and telling you, yeah, I've got like four hours. So if you could show me the whole battlefield today, that would be great. If you've ever been to Gettysburg, you need like three days to see some of the things. And so if they say you have four hours to see whatever you can do, you basically have to decide, am I going to just drive around kind of, you know, in a, in a circle and show as much as I possibly can while making a few observational comments along the way, or are we going to park in one place and get out and kind of focus in? And I would say if there's one way I'm going today, it's probably that latter way, like basically trying to hone in on one particular idea, but I'm also trying to kind of tempt you to want to go back and read these chapters for yourself and uh, on your own and see the the details uh, more fully. So let me read Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 25 today. And this will tell you why Luke wrote this book and uh, tell you just the, the very first story uh, here in the book of Luke. So Luke 1, 1 through 25. Follow along as I read aloud, please. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me, in the days when he looked on me, to take away my reproach among people." Several years ago, the This American Life podcast uh, produced an episode that especially caught my attention. I don't listen to a ton of their podcasts, but some are particularly interesting, and uh, I believe this podcast is actually one of the most popular in our country, something like 10 million listeners every month, uh, from what I understand. The episode I listened to, though, that especially caught my attention was called 129 Cars, and it's about a car dealership on Long Island. If you're familiar at all with Long Island culture, you get a good dose of that in this episode. I also recommend that you listen to the um, edited version with the bleeps throughout it. Just, that's just a suggestion. Uh, but um, their goal at this particular car dealership that Chrysler has set for them as an organization is to sell 129 cars every month and This particular episode just walks them through October of 2012, I believe, maybe October 2013, so it's a year after Hurricane Sandy, and because of Hurricane Sandy, lots of people had gotten new cars, like their cars had been totaled to the flood, and so there weren't a ton of people buying cars at this stage in American life. And so, as you would imagine, when you have a monthly deadline, though, you begin to make decisions um, that maybe make sacrifices in one part of your life so that you can focus on you know, hitting your quota that, that, in this case, Chrysler had set for them. And so the episode is filled with stories of individuals who work at this car dealership uh, whose families have been severely affected by the long hours that these salesmen are working. Uh, essentially, these these guys, in most cases, men are out in the lot day after day trying to sell cars that can get to their goal of 129 cars, and the bottom line is they were taking a loss on almost every car they sold because if they hit 129 cars, they get a huge bonus from Chrysler at the end of the month that more than makes up for the loss that they've made on each of those cars. So they have to make a decision, you know, are we going to sell this car for what it's listed as and what we paid for it in some cases, or are we just going to you know, try to get to that that goal? Well, one of the salesmen that this, this episode highlights is named Joe. And when he's interviewed at the dealership, uh, he's in a gray tracksuit on a Sunday, uh, rather than in his normal business attire. And it's the last day of the month, it's October 31st, which means it's Halloween, which means no one's going to go buy a car because they're spending time with their families. But here it is, it's a Sunday, it's his one off day of the month, which is why he's in a tracksuit, instead of in normal business attire. But when he got up and even after he put on his off-day clothes, he decided to go to work anyway because he still had to help them try to reach their goal. He wasn't supposed to be at work. He was supposed to be at his son's football game, the only road game that he was going to go to the whole season. He had missed most of his son's games for the whole season, so he had promised his son that he was going to be there for this particular road game. And instead, he's in the parking lot, in his gray tracksuit, off-day clothes. And he knows that his son, right at that moment, is looking up in the stands looking for him and just kind of shaking his head like, well, kind of typical, dad's not here. And everybody in his family has gotten used to this about him. He had just missed his mother-in-law's surprise 70th birthday party the week before. Shortly before that, he had missed his own mother's birthday party. It's become somewhat of a family joke that Joe's just not going to show up. He's not going to do what he said he's going to do. He can make all the promises he wants. He can say, I'll be home in 20 minutes, and he'll be home in several hours. Perhaps you know someone like this who is untrustworthy, who says one thing and does the opposite over and over again. They say they'll do something in particular, and they never do it. They say they'll show up, and they never show up. And we would all agree that it's not fun to have to deal with someone like this. It's actually a nightmare for many of us to have to handle people like this. But we would also agree that while it's bad to not be able to trust that we can take a person at His word, it's even worse to wonder whether we can take God at His word. You might think, like, come on, man. Like, I'm a Christian. Obviously, I take God at His word. That's what it means to be a Christian, to believe what God says. But I'll just ask, are there any particular ways that you Don't believe what God has said. Have you ever thought, well, I know the Bible says that, but surely that can't be what it means. It's certainly not been true in my experience. Like, my life would tell that that part of the Bible is not true. Have you ever complained? Complaining is basically saying God is not being good right now. Which means that I'm disbelieving the promises or the, the statements that God is always good. Have you ever given in to a sin habit because you thought, well, I have to have this. And God's not giving it to me, so I'm going to get it my way. That's not taking God at His Word. And this passage that I just read for us tells us about a man who struggled to take God at His Word. Certainly, Zechariah, who we read about, knew God had the power to do whatever He wants. Zechariah is a faithful Jewish man. Faithful Israelite. So he knows God created everything. He knows God rescued Noah from the flood in the ark. He knows God parted the Red Sea for Moses and the people of God. He knows uh, that God made a covenant with David. He knows, going back a little bit before that, about the, the way that God cleared the way for the people of God in the conquest in the book of Joshua. He knew all about Israel's history. He knew about the ways that God had worked miraculously, time and time again, year and year after year. But in the moment of truth, he thought, "Mm, I don't know if God's going to do what he says this time. And the reason this is so bad is that the guy who delivered this message to him, that he's going to be the father of a child, in answer to a prayer that they had probably prayed many times, he and his wife Elizabeth had prayed many times over, the guy. The message had just come from the throne room of God. Zechariah's like, How can I know I can take you for your word? And, and Gabriel, the angel, says, Like five minutes ago, I was standing before God and I was sent. Now, it's a, it's a divine passive. So it doesn't tell you, that's what we call these in, in the Bible, when it doesn't tell you who does something, but it's clear it's God. I was sent by God. Those would be the words you can supply there to tell you you're going to have a baby and you're not believing me right now? That would be what Gabriel would have done if he were a sinner, but we assume he's not. But if there is anything that Luke 1 and Luke 2, these two chapters that we're going to try and kind of fly over together today in the next few minutes, if there's anything that these chapters tell us today, it's that we can believe that God will unfailingly fulfill all His plans and keep all of His promises no matter how impossible they sound. Believe that God will unfailingly fulfill all His plans and keep all His promises no matter how impossible they may sound. This is what Luke 1 and 2 hammers home over and over again. And so I would encourage you this afternoon to go home and read Luke 1 and 2 and just look for all the ways that God keeps His promises and all the ways that that this passage tells you that He does this. And so here we have this, this righteous man, and again, this is where I'm going to zoom for a little while on one particular part, again, like, kind of like we're at Gettysburg, we're going to stop at you know Little Round Top or something, if you've been there, you know what I'm talking about, and we're just going to talk about that for a few minutes, then we'll kind of go on to other parts of these chapters. But here we have these, these two very godly people, that's what verses 5-7 through seven tell us, that, that uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth, this elderly couple, are very godly, but they're also very old. And they really want to have children. Those are the three things we know about them. But they haven't been able to have children. So there's a fourth truth about them. They're godly, they're old, they want kids, they don't have kids. That's what we learn. But we also know some things that this passage doesn't tell us about Zechariah and Elizabeth. We know that they are sinners. Luke doesn't take the time to tell us that. When we read the whole Bible though, when you read Psalm 14, which we uh, read together in our Christmas Eve service last night, you know that there is none good. There are none who seek after God. We are all corrupt in our inner man. And you know this about yourself, but you don't need me to convince you about this. So we know that they were not perfect as much as we also know that they were godly. And that's one of the themes in these first two chapters is that you have a lot of really godly people. You have Mary who's really godly. Joseph isn't talked about a whole lot, but we know from Matthew 1 that he's really godly. Zechariah and Elizabeth are really godly. Simeon and Anna are really godly. Why in the world would Luke give us all these different portraits? It's like one after another of these beautiful portraits. And essentially what he's emphasizing with each one is that they're all really godly. Why would he do this? I think partly because he wants us to see it and say, oh, I should also, by the grace of God, strive to be really godly. There is this uh, element to these two chapters where Luke just shows you the beauty of holiness. The world wants to tell you it's the exact opposite. Like the real joy in life is the opposite of holiness. You have the best parties and the best friends when you can... Live however you want. And the Bible would say, no, the beauty is in following God, in an obeying God, and in trusting what God says is true. And so while we want to emphasize that these people, though the passage does not explicitly tell us they were sinners, we also know they were really godly people, it's almost as if they were picturing what Psalm 1 tells us, that they're people who delighted in the Lord and they meditated on the Word of God day and night and they just loved to walk with God. They loved to live what we could call the Christian life. They faithfully believed the promises of God and they knew that they were saved only because of their faith in God. But we also know that they really wanted children and they didn't have them but the Lord provides one anyway. Why is this important? Well, essentially what this is doing is drawing our attention to lots of other promises, one of which Eddie read for us from Malachi 4, about this one who would go before the Messiah and prepare the way for Him, like clear out, like if you've ever walked on a trail in the woods, somebody put that trail there. They walked through and they cut the brush back. In some places you have to do this every single year to, to make it where it's an accessible trail for, for people to walk or hike or ride their bike. And it's like John the Baptist is going through to clear the path so that you can get all the way to the end of the path, which is where the Messiah is. That's what John the Baptist is doing, and he's the one that Zechariah and Elizabeth have as their child. And so what we see is God kind of breaking back into time. What we know is that there's about a 400-year gap where God is not communicating to his people. That's a really long gap after you had come through times with Elijah and Elisha, and of course you had Moses and Joshua, and all these times where God is speaking to His people, and now you have this silence. What's going on? And now He's breaking back into time, speaking directly through an angel to His people and saying, I'm going to keep My promises. This is what these chapters emphasize for us. And so we see in uh, in this passage that Zechariah had been praying for a child, and Elizabeth had been praying for a child, but they had probably given up. Have you ever experienced that? Like you've prayed for something so many times you think there's no way God can possibly keep this promise? I just want to encourage you not to give up. It seems that Zechariah and Elizabeth have given up uh, from the way that that they respond, that especially Zechariah responds here. Verse 13, the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Which prayer? doesn't tell us, but we assume it's the prayer, give us a son. When did they pray that? Maybe because they're so elderly now, they haven't prayed that in years or decades. What does this tell us? It tells us that God does not work on our timetable, but that God is always on time. He's going to work in your life On his schedule. And that often doesn't match up with our schedules, but it reminds us that we need to be godly waiters. We need to wait with patience. And we see that later on in a passage I won't really take the time to read, but there's a a little snippet of a story about a man named Simeon. We know nothing else about Simeon besides what Luke 2 tells us. And one of the things we learn about Simeon, and again, I could list off like the five or six things that are trues about Simeon, But one of the main things we know about him is that he was waiting patiently for salvation, for the Messiah to come to God's people. And we also know that it had been revealed to him, again, possibly through an angel, as those have been so common here in Luke 1 and 2, that he would not die physically until he saw the Messiah with his very own eyes. That's quite a promise that God had made to him. So he was just kind of living each day in full expectancy that God was going to keep this promise and he was waiting patiently for God to do this. So a beautiful example there. Again, another godly character who says when when he holds Jesus in his hands in the temple after a few weeks of Jesus' life, he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. What's that according to your word part mean? It means God has kept his promise again. Do you, do you know who else in this passage uses the phrase, according to your word? It's Mary. After she hears what God is going to do for her, giving her the privilege of bearing uh, and giving birth to this, this child who will be the Messiah, who will keep all of God's saving promises, she says, Lord, let it be according to your word. You're going to keep your promises. I'm simply your servant. And when I think of those, those words that Mary says in Again, I'm kind of having to like fly from one passage to the next here, so I'm not even gonna read the the passage where she says this, but essentially she she says, Lord, I'm your servant, do with me as you want to do with me. And it makes me think of the story The Hobbit by J. R. R. Tolkien, where Bilbo Baggins has been given this mission, you know, this wizard Gandalf shows up with these weird elves I think there's 12 of them and they're saying we're going to go find this dragon and this gold that he's sitting on and we're going to go and and rescue this gold and let me just read this section to you I absolutely love it it's one of my favorite parts of this of this book Uh, Bilbo says first I would like to know a bit more about things he said feeling all confused and a bit shaky inside but so far still tookishly determined to go on with things "'I mean about the gold and the dragon and all that "'and how it got there and who it belongs to "'and so on and further. "'Bless me,' said Thorin, one of the elves, "'haven't you got a map and didn't you hear our song "'and haven't we been talking about all this for hours? "'All the same, I should like it all plain and clear,' uh, "'said Bilbo obstinately, putting on his business manner, "'usually reserved for people who tried "'to borrow money off him and doing his best "'to appear wise and prudent and professional "'and live up to Gandalf's recommendation. "'Also, I should like to know about risks.' Out-of-pocket expenses, time required, and remuneration, and so forth. By which he meant, what am I going to get out of it? And am I I going to come back alive? Important questions. And Bilbo wanted to know these answers before he decided whether he was going to go on this mission. And Mary's just like, all right, Lord, let it be according to your word. I am your servant. I will be humble before you and just do what you have called me to do. What an example for us. We see one of the other themes that we see here in this passage. Let me just kind of give you the the big idea here again. You You can trust that God will keep every one of His promises. He will fulfill every one of His plans. Particularly, this passage is pointing out that God is keeping His saving plan. And it's showing us like a diamond that you look at from a variety of different angles and see different facets of the beauty. We're looking at it from a lot of different angles, from the perspective of lots of different people involved in this story. So, you know, from the, from the title of the sermon, maybe you could look at this and say, okay, so glory to God in the highest. That's quoting a line from the angels in Luke 2. Maybe you could ask the question, why should we glorify God? What has God done that is praiseworthy here? And we see many aspects of this in the way that he keeps his promises. He designed and he accomplished the plan of redemption. That's what this whole passage is about. It's is another way of describing what this passage is all about. He uses unlikely people to do his work like a couple who can't have children like a young woman who's never had sex with a man like angels like shepherds and you could go on and on and why do i draw our attention to this because if you fast forward to the next 19 chapters of luke which were next week or the week after we're going to start preaching luke 20 up to this point who do you see god using in the book of luke more unlikely characters like peter like zacchaeus like rich people like poor people like prostitutes like children and you could go on and on and in every one of those cases it's like here's 100 people let me pick the least likely one out of that group and why does god keep doing this to bring himself glory so that you will respond by wanting to give Him glory. In so doing, another way we can say this is that God is the God of the impossible. And we see this particularly in chapter 1, verse 37, where again, the angel is speaking to Mary. Let me read verse 35 through verse 38 here of chapter 1. Mary is responding to this news that she's going to give birth to this baby. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And here's that quote I, I read a few minutes ago. Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. If you're here today and you're a skeptic, you're kind of like, i not so sure about this whole Christianity thing. I've heard a lot of this. Maybe this is the time of year when you come to church and we are so glad that you have come to church today. Uh, But you're kind of like, this just does not sit with me well, right? Like, I believe in what I can see. I heard somebody say that on sports radio a couple of weeks ago. Like, I don't believe in invisible things. I believe in visible things. And I think, okay, well, there's, there's your worldview right there. But if you're here as a, as a skeptic, someone just kind of asking questions about what the strange people at Brainerd Avenue Baptist Church believe, we want to encourage you to take this passage at face value. Just believe what it says. Just uh, read it as you read something else. We want to urge you to set aside your presuppositions about God, which dictate whether you can believe something like in a virgin conception, whether you can believe that an elderly uh, couple Can have a child. And what I'm saying is that everyone puts their faith in someone or something, some belief system. And we want to tell you that we believe that the system, to use that word, that the Bible lays out is the most comprehensive and the most consistent worldview available. You have a worldview, whether you realize it or not. You have a story that you believe about where the world came from, and what's wrong with the world, and what would make the world a better place, and what the world would look like after that solution has been put into place. You have a story. You believe about that. Sometimes the stories make more sense than others. Like, you know, your spouse's story might not make as much sense in your mind as your, as your story does. But what I'm saying is, you have a worldview. That's what a worldview is. A way of describing where people came from, What's wrong with the world? What would make it better? What the world's going to look like when that solution is fully implemented? And what I'm telling you, you can summarize that into four words. Creation, fall, redemption, new creation. In other words, the Bible tells you this story. And you can believe it. You can take it at face value. Because the Bible tells you everything that is true and everything that is important, everything that has happened that's important, everything that will happen that is important. And what I'm telling you is that the people in this story had a biblical worldview. Mary had a biblical worldview Simeon and Anna had a biblical worldview. Elizabeth and Zechariah, even though he failed to believe the Word of God here in this, in this case, they had a biblical worldview. They believed that it was worthwhile to obey God, to follow His Word. And so what I'm saying is that their worldview was the right worldview. They understood where they came from and what was wrong with the world and how God was going to fix it. But these people didn't come to this conclusion because they were born that way. No one comes to these conclusions because they're born that way. You come to these conclusions about who God is and who you are and what's wrong with the world by reading the Word of God. And so what I want to appeal to you to do is to follow, again, the example of people like Mary and people like Zechariah. If I were to tell you all of the Old Testament quotations and allusions that are in just Luke 1 and 2, leave off the rest. Luke at this point. Just in those two chapters, we're in the many dozens of Old Testament quotations and allusions. Why does that matter? Because it tells us that Mary and Zechariah and Elizabeth and others knew their Bibles super well. How did that happen? Because they set aside their smartphones and read their Bibles 2,000 years ago. And I want to encourage you to do the same. To reflect on truth. Read it and reflect on it and memorize it and talk to other people about it. And maybe it would help you. Like maybe you would say, like, you know, I, I tend to do better if someone's talking to me about these things instead of just reading it alone. I encourage you to get together. You can use this church building any day of the week, at any time of the week just about, besides 1030 on Sundays, to meet with another person, another Christian, just to read the Bible together. And if you want to bring coffee or make coffee or whatever else, that's fine. Just meet here in a warm building and talk about the Bible together and make it a priority to know what God says. And what that does then is it leads you to want to worship this God. It leads you to want to take Him at His word. It leads you to recognizing the beauty of humility and the beauty of holiness. So as we think about some responses to these truths, that God keeps His promises. And again, the particular promise that He's showing that is being described from lots of different angles here is that He's going to send a Savior to redeem fallen humanity from their sins through the person of Jesus. How we should respond to this. Number one is take God at His word. The reason I read the portion I did, Zechariah 1 or or Luke 1, especially 5 through 25, is because it highlights for us in a way that is difficult to tell you in 30 seconds when I'm going to try. It highlights for us that Zechariah didn't take God at His word. And then it contrasts that with the fact that Mary did take God at His word. Elizabeth took God at His word. Simeon and Anna took God at His word. And so in other words, these two chapters are telling you take God at His word. Believe His promises no matter how impossible they sound. Let me tell you in 30 seconds how this... uh, This passage I read, 5 through 25, highlights that Zechariah didn't respond this way. It does so by using like a funnel effect. And what you have is at the beginning and end, you have matching elements and then matching elements again and matching elements again. And then you have an angel speak and an angel speak. And in between all that, you have Zechariah speak. So it's funneling down to the most important sentence in the passage, in the story that we read. And it's Zechariah's question. How can I know this is true? That's his question. And then later on, the the angel tells us, you did not believe what I told you, what God told you through me. You did not believe. But then elsewhere in the passage, you have Mary asking a very similar question, but then she says, may it be according to your word? And Elizabeth She's filled with the Holy Spirit, so we can almost say under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit there, tells us you did believe what God said. So that's the contrast there. So I would encourage you to look for those those, uh, elements in verses 5 through 25, again, on your own time, or you can email me and I'll send you my notes. But uh, what I want to tell you is this whole chapter and these first two chapters are telling you you can take God at His word. Other responses. One would be to praise him publicly. I have four passages here, where, or four references here, where people respond to God out loud. They just want to glorify God vocally for what God has done. So one is in verse forty-six through fifty-five. I'm not going to read this beautiful song that Mary sings here, essentially, or this poetic response to the work of God. But that would be one. Verses uh, forty-one. Uh, Forty six, I should say, through fifty five. Another is in one sixty four when John finally gets his voice back and perhaps his hearing back as well. There are some elements that make you think he perhaps was deaf and mute here for for these months. Immediately in verse sixty four, his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. That's what came out of his heart through his mouth. Was praise God in verses one th- uh, in verse. 64 there in chapter 1. And what he said when he blessed God is then listed out for you there in verses 67 through 79. You also have the angels praising God publicly in chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And in chapter 2, verse 38, And coming up at that very hour, Anna began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem, for God to make all things right, in other words. So these are just some of the ways that people responded publicly. But I also want to encourage you to respond to this truth that God keeps His promises by pondering this truth privately. Where am I getting that idea? Chapter 1, verse 66, all who heard them laid them up in their hearts. That's a way of saying they thought deeply about these matters. Then in chapter 2, verse 19, Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And then in this isn't technically in the passage we're preaching today, but still in chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 51, Jesus went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Luke's just telling you in a variety of ways that when people heard the truth, they responded to it by thinking about it deeply. Do you have a journal at home? Do you have a notebook? Do you have anything you can write things down on? Read a passage and write some thoughts down out out about it and then think about these things throughout the week, throughout the day. So ponder the truth privately and then simply be faithful in the ordinary. What do I mean by that? Well, here in chapter 2, verse 39... Mary and Joseph have performed everything according to the law of the Lord. They returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. What do we have there? We have invisibly an element of Mary and Joseph doing their job. God didn't drop in their lap a manual about how to raise the Messiah child. (laughs) Like, that would have been really nice. I'm sure they would have appreciated that. Instead, what they did was they did their job. They changed Jesus' diapers. They fed Him. They taught Him how to read and write. They played games with Him. They helped His siblings learn how to relate to their perfect siblings. <laughs> they had family worship. They taught the Old Testament to Jesus and to His family. They had family worship together. They did their job. And I just want to urge you, To do your job. To fulfill your responsibilities that God has given you at this stage in your life. Maybe this stage in your life is your retirement stage. Maybe it's the parenting stage. Maybe it's the still working but children out of the home stage or anything in between. Be faithful in the ordinary. When you come to the end of the 129 Cars This American Life episode, you find out that the dealership, is a spoiler alert here, this dealership actually does squeak by. They sell exactly 129 cars in October of 2013, and they made the last sale right before they closed, and they even say like, what dork wants to drive a car out of the lot at 10 o'clock at night? Okay, if you want to do it, that's fine. It helps us reach our goal. And so they, uh, but it was amazing how they pulled this off. There were lots of crazy situations in the last day or two of the month. But you also hear right at the end about another one of the guys getting a text from his wife and they're fighting and they're having this fight over text. And every time he gets another negative text, you can just hear him sigh. Oh my goodness, she won't let up. And the issue was she wanted to know when he would be home, of all things, as a, as a spouse. And uh, he feels that's unreasonable. You know, if you wanted a guy who had a predictable schedule, maybe you should have married a guy who works nine to five. Instead, you married a car salesman. Like, this is what you signed up for, is what he's telling his wife. All she wants to know is that he'll be home when he says he'll be home. She wants to know she can take him at his word. In, more mi- in her mind, that's more important than meeting a sales goal. Selling that 129th car did not help any of those guys have happy marriages or suddenly become wonderful fathers or mothers. What I want to stand here to tell you today is that no matter how impossible it may sound, when God tells you He's going to do something, He's going to do it. And just yesterday I had this experience where I, I experienced, where I Believed with fresh eyes in the return of Christ. And this happened because I was sitting on the couch in front of the fireplace with Andrew. He likes to snuggle. I like it when my kids like to snuggle. It's a delight, especially on Christmas Eve. And we're sitting there snuggling, and I said something about, well when Jesus returns, daddy-daddy-da." And I can't remember what it was. And he just looked over me and goes, "Daddy, will Jesus return after we die?" He asks all the time about what's going to happen after we die. And I said, "Well, maybe. But he could also return really soon. We don't know when he's going to return. And, just try, and he just kind of went, oh, okay. He kind of looked off out the window, like kind of pondering this in his heart as he's supposed to do with truth. And just telling a five-year-old, Jesus is going to return maybe before we die, maybe after we die. It just helped me see it through fresh eyes and believe it with refreshing joy and I kind of expressed to him like, what's, what it's going to be like when Jesus returns, when He makes all things new, when there's no more sin, when there are no more fathers of 12 children who die the week before Christmas, as I heard of this past week, when there are no more people who get run over while riding their bike here in countryside. And we could go through all the sad things that have happened in our lives individually, corporately, as a community, as a world. You think about the torture that people are going through in in their lives right now, what it will be like when all the sad things become untrue. And that's the promise we get to take to the bank because God says, I will keep all of my promises no matter how hard they seem to believe. I urge you, church, take God at His Word every single time. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we want to thank you this morning for being trustworthy. You do all you say you will do. Make us people today who believe you, who become people who love and study your word, who repent daily, and who yearn for Christ's return and the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth, at which time all of your promises will be complete. Amen.